All right. Hi, my name is Tzemach, and my guest today is Sholem Aleichem. And uh, good. And I'll just uh, pass the mic to Sholem Aleichem. Go ahead, please. How are you today, Tzema? Good, thank you. So I, I heard from you, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I said, go ahead. No, I thought, you know, I think we should start with a sort of a core issue. And that is, it is my understanding that you heard something from Barry Gurari. Why don't you go ahead and tell what, uh, what he said? Well, in my conversations with uh, Barry Gurari, who was the only grandchild of the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, and uh, during his lifetime, meaning during the lifetime of Rabbi Joseph I. Schneerson, um, young Barry, and later on he wasn't that young, but Barry Gurari was fairly close to his grandfather. And um, in many occasions, sat in on many of the Yechidus uh, sessions with the Rebbe and his various petitioners uh, uh, behind curtains. Now, uh, Gurari told me that uh, <clears throat> his grandfather did, in fact, leave a will, and uh, what he was talking about was not a will, uh, economic will or material will, but a spiritual will, not an ethical will either, but a spiritual will detailing uh, how he saw the continuity of Lubavitch following his death. When, when did he tell you that? Uh, this probably was in the late 1980s or early 1990s, when the subject of a will in Lubavitch was very much on the mind of everyone uh, as the uh, seventh Lubavitch Rebbe was uh, becoming uh, old and infirm, uh, suffering a stroke uh, uh, afterwards, or he may have had the stroke before uh, Gurari told me this, but the subject of will was very much on people's minds. So when when did he tell you, and what uh, what what did he tell you was in the will? Well, Barry uh, or uh, Rabbi Gurari or Mr. Gurari, known uh, just one and the same person, um, told me that uh, he he was under he knew that the will of his grandfather was in the top right hand drawer of his personal desk meaning Rabbi Schneerson's desk. And uh, there are many pictures in the United States of Rabbi Schneerson sitting behind his desk. It was a large desk uh, surrounded by books. And uh, the picture that comes into my mind right now is Rabbi Schneerson is wearing the fur hat, the Kulpec, uh, and sitting behind the desk. And it's a, it's a large desk. And uh, Garari claimed that that's where the will was located and that his grandfather told him that that's where the will was. And so where he heard from about the content of the will from whom? From Rayats? 
The contents of the will he probably heard, and I, I'm not 100% certain of this, but he, uh, he heard from the Riyadhs. And, and I did ask him about the contents. Uh, I asked him, was his uh, father named, or his father being Rabbi Shmar Yohu Gurari, the oldest son-in-law of the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe and his uh, aide-de-camp for many, many years. And I asked him if his father was named, and he said no. Uh, I responded by saying that was his uncle named. Uh, that's the man who eventually became the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson. And he said no. And um, I did not ask him any other questions about who was named in the will. Because by logical deduction, uh, I assume that uh, he, Barry Garari, was named in the will because uh, there were no other candidates. Um, it was one of those three men, either uh, Rabbi Samarius Garari, Shmario Garari, known as the Rashag, or Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, or uh, Barry Garari. I mean, there were other Schneersons from Flatbush. They're different Schneersons. There were Schneersons, but they weren't. Why would uh, there was no reason to go beyond the immediate family um, to pick a successor, especially when there were three? Um, certainly, there were three qualified men uh, who could be the successor. Uh, um, Rabbi Shmario Gurari uh, certainly uh, was a scholar of Chabad Hasidic uh, philosophy. Uh, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson certainly was uh, a Talmudic scholar. And uh, Barry Gurari uh, himself, although he was a young man, had already received smicha from uh, Yeshiva Torah Vadas and was a, um, you know, the only grandchild of Rabbi Joseph Eisenerson, and as such, the only living continuity from the first five Lubavitcher Rebbe's. Because after all, if he was a grandchild of Rabbi Joseph Schneerson, he was a great-grandson of Darashab, Rabbi Shalom Beren, he was a great-great-grandson of uh, Marash, and so on. And so all these three men being having qualifications to be Rebbe, why would... Um, uh, why would anyone choose someone else, even if they had, even if they were Schneerson cousin or something like that? So, so uh, Barry Wright didn't explicitly say it was him, but he did yeah. tell you that it wasn't his father, the Rashad, right? He told me it wasn't his father, nor was it his uncle. Uh huh. Uh, it's sort of a in interesting angle because. The, the bad relationship that he had with Ramash, people always say it's because he was upset about his father, but there might be something more significant than his father, which is himself. There may be. Um, there may, in fact, be. Um, um, I, I don't think anyone is alive today who really knows, and even 20 years earlier, who really knows the inside scoop about what went on between 1950 and 51. I mean, there are people who have written books and claim they know, but a lot of it is based on hearsay. Some of it is based on what the present uh, party 
who is uh, in control of Chabad and Chabad uh, public relations. And finally, some of it is just based, uh, again, on uh, complete speculation, total speculation uh, about people who've never uh, spoken to any of the parties involved, you know. So, um, so on one hand, um, this was after the, after the story with the books, and obviously, um, Bear Gorari was upset at certain parties at that dispute. But at the at the, at the same time, why would he make something up like that? Um, it's hard to believe. I mean, I don't think he would make it up. And uh, I think I neglected to add one detail, which is that uh, when I asked uh, Gurari what happened to the will, because he claimed there was a will. So I said, what, what did happen to the will? And he said, the first person to enter my grandfather's office following his death on Shabbos took the will. And I did ask him, who was that person? And he said, that was my uncle. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's, uh, first of all, I know the argument is in, in Chabad, they like to say that Ramash was super qualified for the role, as opposed to compared to others, who might not be as qualified. But uh, if you take a percentage of Hasidic rabbis who were quote well, unquote are qualified, most of them, they were, you know, 90% they were, maybe 95% they were just managers. Right, may, may I just add something at this point? Yes. Um, I have spoken to uh, in years gone by with many, or at least more than a few, non-Lubavitchers who attended Tom Chetimimim Lubavitch Yeshiva in the late 1940s. Why did they attend? Because until the 1950s and the early 50s, there really were no Hasidic Yeshivas in the United States. Uh, there were none. As a matter of fact, the Tzelemer in uh, Williamsburg had a Hasidic cheder, but not a yeshiva. Um, the Satmar started the yeshiva only in the early 1950s, which was a very small institution, and many uh, more, um, shall we say, moderate Hasidim uh, from Poland would not go to the Satmar yeshiva. So there were any number of non-Lubavitcher uh, young men who attended Lubavitcher Yeshiva. And I've spoken to some of them, and the the common refrain from them is, is that was well known in Lubavitch, and Lubavitch was not a big place in those days, that the Rashag, Rabbi Shmario Guhari, was a much more significant scholar of Chabad Hasidic thought than Rabbi Schneerson. And on the other hand, it was regard it was known that Rabbi Schneerson was more of a rabbinic scholar than Rabbi Gerari. But in context, that uh, Rabbi Schneerson himself, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, was known as more of a Hasidic scholar than a rabbinic scholar, Rabbi Gerari's qualifications cannot be questioned. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not too concerned about uh, his resume, so to speak. Because in Chabad itself, there were precedents 
like for example, Maharash was the least qualified person on paper and didn't prevent him to hold on to Lubavitch. Right. You know, as, a, uh, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, the way Ilya Rips, uh, Ilya Luria uh, writes it in his book is that there's also was some kind of a mix up with the Tsevo, with the will. Right. And they're also, in, you know, the other aspect of it, Marash was like a Mizinik. He was the youngest, and who knows, you know, as the Rebetzins always run uh, all courts in Hasidus. So they, right. they not, sometimes not, a decisive voice. Not, not, um, not be in bearing to any one of the three uh, people we're talking about, although maybe more towards uh, Barry Garari. Uh, I recall reading an interview with uh, Rabbi Borah Rabinovich, who himself was uh, one of the most fascinating figures in the Hasidic world in the 20th century. He was the son of a very important Hasidic Rebbe in Poland, the parts of a Rebbe, and the Munkacha Rebbe in Hungary picked him as his son-in-law, and by that, his successor, because the Munkacha Rebbe had one daughter, no sons, so he picked young Boruch Rabinovich as his son-in-law, and there was a huge marriage, which is documented in a film and in various photographs, and uh, so Rabbi Rabinovich eventually, after World War II, uh, felt that for whatever reasons he could not continue being Munkacha Rebbe, but he was interviewed in, his, in an Orthodox Israeli uh, newspaper a number of years ago prior to his death, and he said an interesting thing, among many interesting things he, he said in the interview, that he had personally had seen many Hasidic Rebbe's who, in his opinion, didn't amount to much prior to their assuming the leadership role, and after assuming the leadership role, really became very impressive um, leaders. So um, I don't think that really is pertinent to either Rabbi Gurari or Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, because they proved their scholarship and leadership roles prior to 1950. But, you know, to those doubters who seek to cast doubt on Barry Gurari, uh, I think it is pertinent. Okay, so uh, let's see. Uh, first, could you comment something on the fact that uh, sort of everybody thinks that the argument between Ramash and Barry Gurari was about Rashad, his father? If, if, if in fact it's not his father, it like sort of go upends this entire story. Well, I don't think that in any Hasidic group, any of the possible heirs, if there is no will, can actually personally campaign for himself and declare that he's a candidate. In other words, it's like, you know, in the Democratic or Republican presidential campaigns, at least in the past. Nowadays, you have to declare your candidacy two years in advance. But in the old days, uh, dark horses were common. Dark horses were common. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it was in the 19th century and certainly before the Civil War, it was considered very impolite 
to campaign for the presidency. Uh, for example, I mean, uh, I'm not going to go into American history, but for example, John Fremont, who was a famous explorer uh, and a general, um, was a candidate to become the Republican nominee both in 1856 and in 1860. And neither time, in 1856, he actually got the nomination, but on neither occasion did he actually declare his candidacy, and on neither occasion did he actually campaign. And um, this even went on later, because Warren Harding, for example, who did become president, um, basically campaigned for, for the presidency from his front porch in a small town in Ohio. Now, why am I saying this? Because it is really impolite in the Hasidic world as well to declare your candidacy to be a Rebbe. Um, so Barry Garari, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but if Barry Garari thought that he was in the will, could he actually in 1950 go out and say, well, you know, I am the candidate. I want to be the Rebbe, you know, vote for me. He obviously couldn't say that. Uh, that would probably uh, eliminate him from the get go. So the fact that he never said it doesn't mean very much either, because in fact, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson never said he wanted to be Rebbe, and Rabbi Menachem Schneerson um, did, at least in terms of outward motions, his best to convince people that he did not want to be the Rebbe. The more he told people he didn't want to be the Rebbe, the more they wanted to him. And in fact, if he had said, you know, I want to be the Rebbe, he probably wouldn't have become the Rebbe. Yeah, but going back to the will, you know, Barry Garari would hear about it, maybe if not from his grandfather, maybe even from his grandmother. It's just, after all, it's a family. Yeah, I mean, it, it's possible that we're, you know, we're we're going up a uh, a, um, <clears throat> a wrong road. You know, we're getting lost. It's possible that Rabbi Joseph Schneerson. Uh, was considering a joint leadership, you know, between, you know, the three men, although I doubt that I've, because I don't, I think right, Joseph Schneerson is a very smart man and a, and a pretty good administrator. So I don't think, and I think he knew that, for example, Rabbi Shmaru Gurari and Rabbi Menachem Schneerson did not get along and were completely different personalities. So I just don't see him saying that, well, leadership can be um, joint. Um, but, you know, uh, I'm not a prophet. Yeah, well, in, in this game, more important what Mechamadzina thought, you know? Well, she felt, um, at least in terms of what we hear, she felt that uh, Rabbi Gurari should become the Rebbe. And then... Which one? When you say Rabbi Gurari, you, you mean... The youngest, well, the junior. Yeah, I mean, I mean the senior. No, no, the I senior. mean the senior. The senior. Um, well, you know, I mean the senior. And in the negotiations, and, um, you know, people... People... Write, mean, did, what, let, me, let me ask, just let me ask them. Did, did you think, in, in, in just to continue the same narrative, which is, I don't like the word narrative, but whatever. To continue the same <laughs> to continue the same narrative, uh, that would mean that Muhammadina, which was the wife of Rayats, felt differently than maybe Rayats himself if he indeed wrote the will. 
Oh, I, I don't know. I, I, I just, that, that's speculation. I would have to think that the Hamadina, um, was reflective of the, of the, um, if I can use the word will with a small w, with, of the will of her late husband. I, I would have to think that, but, you know, there's no certainty of that. But, um, but there were negotiations. It was clear. It is clear from letters. It is clear from diaries, although the diaries, in my opinion, that exist are all tainted because they, they all, in my opinion, have been tampered with to reflect the eventual winner. Like uh, in the secular world, um, if someone's going to write about the presidential election in 1932, um, someone will write some nice things about Herbert Hoover, even though Franklin Roosevelt won. But in the Hasidic world, um, if her, if your candidate lost, you're not going to write any great things about your candidate. You're going to switch over and write the great things about the winner. The winner is everything. So these diaries, in my opinion, are tainted. But they do show that there were negotiations going on, that uh, when uh, the old rebbets in Hamadina saw that uh, the, the Rabbi Gurari Sr. couldn't make it, she uh, sort of proposed another division, that Rabbi Gurari become the leader of Chabad in Israel and that Rabbi Schneerson be the leader of Chabad in America. Uh, so there, there were there was room for negotiations, and they were negotiations, but apparently none of these things... Um, you know, were did, effective. Did you say and, that? Did you say that Muhammadina didn't care for Ramash? That's what they say. I I didn't know Muhammadina, and I didn't know. Um, you know, I, I saw the Ramash. I didn't know the Ramash, but th accordingly, that's what but they who claim. Who are they? Who are they? You say they say. Who uh, are they? You know, the Hasidim. Today's Hasidim, a Hasidim of thirty years ago, forty years ago, the. The idea was that Muhammadina didn't care for the Ramash. And, you know, in fact, there's some things that bear it out. Number one, the fur hat, the kalpak, uh, whatever you mm -hmm. want to call it, the shredded, the kalpak, was not given to Rabbi, Rabbi uh, Schneerson, Rabbi Mendel Schneerson. He didn't get it, which is, you know. Right. I, um, thought, you, I thought you gave it to Shimi Deutsch, no? <laughs> yeah, you, absolutely. I, I yeah. forgot that. I forgot that point. You're right. All right. Um, okay. um, but, and it would have, if she supported Rabbi Schneerson, Rabbi Mendel Schneerson, it probably would have happened that um, all the books, the library, would have been given to Rabbi Mendel Schneerson, and yet we have a, uh, I don't remember the exact legal term, but we have an unsigned will that no one doubts is the will of Rebetzin Schneerson. No one doubts that, except uh -huh. it's not signed, it's not legal, um, where she divides the, the manuscripts and the books and other property one-third to... Um, Rashags and, and one third, and Rashag and his wife, one third to uh, the Rebbe and his wife, Rabbi Schneerson and his wife, and one third to Barry Garari. Now, if she really felt that Rabbi Mendel Schneerson was the man, she would have given all the, at least the Kasavim, the manuscripts, and the books to Rabbi Mendel Schneerson, which she didn't. And by the way, when she died in, what is it, 1970 or 71, I mean, uh, 
the listeners can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe it's 1970 that she died. Um, at the beginning, Lubavitcher Hasidim were naming their newborn daughters after her, but the, um, the um, how shall I say it? Uh, it came down from the highest office in Chabad that no one should name anything after her. And in fact, uh, no one has since. Uh, the name Nechamadina uh, is very unusual in Chabad today. And as far as I can tell, and, you know, I'm sure there's some Lubavitcher out there who'll tell me that there's a uh, nursery school in uh, Outer Mongolia that's called uh, <laughs> Base Nechamadina, but there's certainly, there's certainly nothing compared to um, any other, you know, there certainly are no real institutions named after her. Um, so that, again, shows that there was bad blood, if I can use the term, between um, Mrs. Sh- uh, Schneerson Sr., Nahamadina, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Yeah, but uh, if if there was a tzavo, if there was a will, wouldn't Nahamadina know about it? And, and then, you know, the question is, why didn't she give everything to Ramash? But I'll ask you a different question. Why in that unofficial will? We're confusing will here, but now we're talking about the will written by Nechamadina. Why wouldn't she give it to... First of all, Nechamadina couldn't... She she didn't have the power to choose a rebbe. I, mean, oh, I understand, that, that but this, this symbolic will with, with this forum and what have you. Well, you know, again, I don't think that uh, by the time... I don't know when she... I, don't, I have a copy of that will, but uh, I don't recall when it was written. Um, it's a good question that you ask, but I don't think she felt it was within her per, in, in her um, responsibility to name a new Rebbe. I don't think a Rebbetson has ever done that in any Hasidic group, although, you know, once again, I can uh, expect uh, the Hasid of some dynasty to, to uh, remark that, oh, uh, you know, in 1879, in Galicia, Mrs. So-and-so said her second son should be Rebbe. I mean, it's possible, uh, but it's not common. Um, I, I also think by, there was this general issue that by, by six months after Rabbi Joseph Schneerson passed away, it, it became clear that the, um, the dynamics were had moved towards Rabbi Mendel Schneerson as the successor, and uh, I'm not sure Nahomadina felt that uh, there was much she can do to stop those dynamics. Okay, so let's uh, let's do a Likovid mental blog. Let's do a mental exercise. Uh, let's say uh, <laughs> let's say there was in fact a tzavo, a will from Rayats that named. Barry Gurari as his successor. And let's say, as Barry Gurari says, it was destroyed. Now it will have some far-reaching implications to the whole monarchy of Ramash. Well, it may and it may not, because it may, if the will were ever discovered, uh, you know, if uh, if someone, uh, I don't know, found a, a safe deposit box in some bank and some way or another, the contents of that were um, 
got into the hands of some uh, investigative reporter. But I, I don't think the Hasidim in Lubavitch today uh, could care less uh, what the Rayats uh, felt or what the Rayats wrote. The fact was that Rabbi Nachman Schneerson was Rebbe for uh, 42, some 43 years. And um, that, those were the facts. That's simple, the simple fact. And it, there's nothing that's going to change that. I mean, I think no, a lot. Will, no, but I, what I mean, I mean, like he he knew maybe like he if if and I'm just it's all hypothetical. But Ramash would know if he destroyed the will. Well, that that's possible. I mean, as I've as you know, I've thought about this. Uh, it may explain from a psychological viewpoint why uh, the Ramash seemed to harbor a major dislike to. Um, and I will now call him Rabbi Shalom Bir Gurari, uh, alias Barry Gurari. He seemed to harbor a major dislike because even when uh, Barry Gurari um, started removing books from the library, um, and if the Rebbe felt that they didn't belong to him, uh, he easily could have called in, uh, you know, one of hundreds of Lubavitcher millionaires and or 10 of them and asked them each for $50,000 and given Barry a half million dollars and say, um, sign this piece of paper that uh, the whole library manuscripts belong to an organization called the Gudas Hasidic Chabad, which by the way, didn't exist until the book did, had been uh, in, uh, in a state of, uh, of a coma until from 1951 until the bookcase came and for something like 35 years, it didn't exist. But, uh, and Gorari would have signed off on it because Barry was interested in the money, not in the books. But the Rebbe didn't want to do that. The Rebbe wanted some sort of legal mechanism and he couldn't get it by a Besden because a Besden usually will want Peshara. A Besden will want to compromise. Abesdin will not want to do what they call in halachic rabbinic terminology, din. It will not want to issue a verdict. It could, but it would not want to. And um, and in yes. din... I'm he not, wanted gezerim in the shaman. Well, I'm not a, yeah, I'm not a, um, I'm not a uh, expert in Hoshin um, Mishpat, in the section of the Jewish Code of Law. Yeah. But... From talking to people who are experts, there's a good chance that a uh, objective Besden, and that's not easy to find, especially in a case like this. But if you could find an objective Besden, let's say three rabbis from uh, who had been hiding in Tibet for the last 200 years, um, <laughs> if you can, if you can find them, there's a good reason to believe that, according to Chosh Mishpat, um, Barry Gurari's mother, and um, <clears throat> Mrs. Schneerson, um, Mushka, uh, were the rightful heirs, and uh, not not there was no evidence at all that Agudas Chasidi Chabad was an heir to the worldly possessions of Rabbi Joseph I. Schneerson. Uh, so the Rebbe, I think, wanted he couldn't get a Besdin to do his work, so he decided that a secular court would issue a decree that he. And Agudas Hasidic Chabad were the rightful owners to this, not not Barry Gurari, not 
Samarius Gorari, not Chana Schneerson, but that Agudas Chichobad. And that would eliminate, sort of, so to speak, Barry Gorari as a as an ear to to any part of Joseph I. Schneerson. And since the Rebbe regarded the books and the manuscripts as part of the living body of Joseph Schneerson, as strange as we may think of that, he simply he seriously regarded it as the as the earthly continuity of the body of Rabbi Joseph I. Schneerson. Now, if a secular court can rule that Barry Gorari had nothing to do with the living body of Joseph I. Schneerson, that would go a long way to resolving his guilt feelings. Now, I'm saying all of this in terms of uh, from a psychological point of view. I'm not saying that any of this is factual or anything, but from a psychological point of view. And once this case got underway, the Rebbe stopped essentially being a Rebbe. He stopped saying Hasidic discourses, which is really the chief function of a Chabad Rebbe. Um, you know, the rest of the stuff a Chabad Rebbe does giving brachas and even yechidas is secondary. The chief dollars, function dollars, is... Dollars, main thing yeah, is dollars. dollars. Yeah, it's all about maybe, dollars. Maybe in, our t- in our day, maybe the Hasidim wanted a $50 bill, not yes. $1 bill. Yeah, right. but, um, um, but giving Hasidic discourses is the chief function of a, uh, of a Chabad Rebbe. And uh, if you take a look in base Rebbe, the, the history of Chabad in the first three and actually goes further generations... Um, the author uh, does indicate that that is the chief function of a Chabad Rebbe, saying Hasidic discourses, Mamorim. Uh, and the Rebbe stopped saying Mamorim then, because he sort of, I, I guess, from, again, from a psychological point of view, he felt that Gurari was, and, and they said that, that Gurari was uh, disputing the Rebbe's leadership. Now, of course, I would tell people that Barry Gurari uh, told me on many instances that he does not want to be a social worker and he is not interested in being the Hasidic leader. He's an engineer. Uh, but that didn't seem to um, move the Lubavitcher Rebbe because the Lubavitcher Rebbe seemed to feel that Barry Garari was not disputing money, but Garari was disputing um, his leadership. Now, that's an interesting, uh, interesting feeling because nowhere... Did Barry Garari ever indicate that he was disputing his uncle's leadership? Uh, nowhere. I mean, uh, neither in court documents nor in interviews in uh, Long Island uh, Newsday or in the New York Times or, or in anywhere. He never indicated he was disputing his uncle's leadership. But the Rebbe seemed to feel that he was. And the answer is why. Why did the Rebbe feel that Gerari, well, because maybe, maybe, just maybe. Krinsky told him. Krinsky told him. Well, well, Krinsky and Shemtov told him. Krinsky and Shemtov and other of the Zikne Anash, the uh, elders of Lubavitch, may have actually felt that way. But, um, you know, so it's an an interesting observation, whether it's true or not, who who would know? Um, You know, I'm not saying this is fact. But it's a, it's an interesting food for thought, you know. Uh, I don't know if um, if people who are listening here ever read uh, uh, a book, uh, and I can't remember by Mr. William Bullitt, I think was his name. He was ambassador of the U.S. to France, um, and I believe he was there during the Vichy uh, occupation too. He was there for many years. 
uh, I think his last name was Bullock, William Bullock. And William Bullock, believe it or not, was not Jewish. And uh, Bullock was a student of Sigmund Freud. That's why I'm saying he wasn't Jewish. Um, he was one of the few students of Sigmund Freud who was not Jewish. And uh, Mr. Bullock wrote a fascinating book. I believe it's called Young Woodrow Wilson, and it's a psychoanalytic study of Woodrow Wilson, uh, of what made Woodrow Wilson tick. And it's a fascinating book, and uh, I did read it years ago when I was in college, uh, and I think I reread it. And so nothing in the book about Woodrow Wilson is fact. It's just speculation from a psychological point of view. I am not a psychiatrist and I'm not a, certainly not an analyst. I mean, well, maybe I, I'm neither, neither one. Certain, certainly is not the right word. I'm neither one. Uh, but I'm just uh, speculating that uh, given the Rebbe's sort of um, raising the stakes in the, in the battle, on the Gerari side, the stakes were strictly monetary. On the Rebbe's side, the stakes seemed to take on uh, existential meaning. But isn't it like a style that many things uh, for Amash to what you call existential meaning? Um, it's, sort of a, it's sort of personality that uh, not just about Barry, just uh, in general. You may be right. You may be right. I, I probably could, could offer a little bit more information on that question, but I don't want to get off the subject of um, of the will. Sure. So what else is there to dig with? Well, one wonders why the Rashag, Rabbi Samarius Gurari, um, just didn't get up and start a competing court in another neighborhood in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Because after all, um, although Chabad is not interested in publicizing this, um, after the first Rebbe died, Chabad split between the followers of uh, his son and the followers of Rebbe Arnash Yes. Uh, after a split, uh, after a passed on, um, you know, his son-in-law became the Rebbe, but it wasn't seamless either. And I, and I don't think we really have all the facts, but it wasn't seamless. There's, there were a, a plethora of candidates to be the Rebbe. I mean, Reb Chaim Avram, the Reb Dober's brother was a candidate, and there were others. Um, after Tzamech Tzedek, we actually have um, yes. uh, five or six Rebbes. And um, when the Maharash died, um, you know, once again, the the original leadership was a dual leadership of Rav Shneir Zalman Aaron, the Razor, and the Rashab, and the Razor bowed out after a year. And uh, well, when the Rashab passed on in nineteen twenty, let me ask you something. Wasn't wasn't Razor by himself for a year? At least that's what uh, 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 Ilya Luri writes. The reason I'm maybe. saying, and if if in fact Razor was a rabbi for a year till he got sick of it, then he, in fact, Ramash wouldn't be the rabbi number seven, would be the rabbi number eight. So it, it blows away that, that seventh narrative again. Yeah, I'm not sure. I always thought that it was a dual leadership, but, you know, uh, 
I respect what other people write, you know, and uh, I, I don't claim to be a, a Rebbe who knows everything. So, um, I mean, it may be. Okay. It may be. That, it may be. That, um, as far as um, as far as numbers go, um, in 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 the generation of Rabbi Joseph Eichnerson, um the you know the number seven was again used because it, the Balshemtov and the Magid of Mezritz were two, the Alter Rebbe was three, the Mittal Rebbe was four, the Tzemotzedek was five. And uh, my Rosh was six, and the Rashad was seven. So once you, one can play with numbers, one can play with numbers. And I recall reading that the Rayats, right, Joseph Eisenhower, in another numbers, uh, you know, configuration, said that the other Chabad Rebbes, the other children of the Tzemach Tzedek, namely the Kopister, the Nezhener, the Ladir, um, I believe I've covered them all. There were grandchildren who were rabbis. Um, was represented one. It also represented one in, in the in the uh, you know it represented a group, a grouping of one. So in the addition, it was also one. So the number seven can be played around with. I I think one can create the number seven out of a lot of different configurations. You know um, so. Um, you know, well, eight eight would actually fit Ramash better because eight is Mashiach. It will be number eight then, you know. Well, you know, um, personally, you know, um, you know, I don't. Th I, I will say this: I did not. I was not in Crown Heights, but I did. I did attend the Lubavitcher school, and I did talk to Hasidim. I personally, and I don't claim that, again, once again, I don't claim that I have the, uh, the can I use the word, the gospel truth? Sure. Um, uh, I don't claim I have the gospel truth, but I never heard anyone say that this would be, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson would be the last Rebbe. I never heard that. Whenever I asked, and I was a little bit of a chutzpahdika kid, you know, uh, when I was 10, 11, 12, even older, and I asked Hasidim, what's going to happen afterwards? And they all said, uh, either Mashiach may come or, you know, uh, but no one said that he would be Mashiach. And no one said that he would be the last Rebbe. And as a matter of fact, you know, uh, until the bookcase, I think there were a lot of older, um, what, you know, what they call in Crown Heights today, Geja, Hasidim, yes. who... Uh, Hasidim, and uh, let's see, for the people out there who don't know Geja, is Geja are, are people who can say that their grandparents or great-grandparents were Hasidim in Russia, and the technical thing is that their grandfather or great-grandfather studied in the Lubavitcher Yeshiva. Um, which which wouldn't but, make Ramash a Geja, of course. <laughs> but, uh, okay. Uh, I, I, I won't answer that. Um, but um, I, I've lost track of what I was going to say about the, uh, but, and, and, but I never, you know, I never heard that this, that the Rebbe would be the last Rebbe. And I, what I was going to say is that I think a lot of the Geja Hasidim, I call them Russian Hasidim, um, really believed and hoped, the word is hoped, that Gurari, Barry Gurari, would, would assume leadership. Uh, 
when that fateful day would arrive. Uh, of course, when the bookcase came, uh, that was the end of that. But but the Rebbe made sure that that was the end of that, because uh, for a minute, let's just imagine, and again, we, we need to use our imagination, um, that uh, Gurari uh, never was involved in the bookcase. And the Rebbe passed on in 1994, and Barry Gurari was uh, living in Montclair. I mean, it's doubtful that Barry Gurari would become Rebbe, but it's not doubtful that he would lay claim to all the earthly possessions of Lubavitch. And it's highly doubtful that anyone in the Secretariat or other Lubavitcher functionaries would be able to launch a serious legal claim against him. Uh, and, you know, so one has to think about what that would do, that Barry Garari could be the kingmaker uh, even without becoming Rebbe. And, you know, and he did names a few people in Lubavitch who he liked, um, you know, and I won't name them because I don't want to I don't want to harm their reputations by being connected with Barry Garari, uh, even though they're not connected with Barry Garari. Um, so. Um, I never heard of this thing that uh, there are only eight, uh, only seven Rebbes in Lubavitch, and uh, the Rebbe, the seventh Rebbe, will be Mashiach. Um, you know, I'm sure. No, no, it's know, a, there's a number of games. It's like I'm just saying. Uh, you know, it's as a side. It's not really interesting. No, in private conversation with many Lubavitchers and even some younger ones, in private conversation. Many of them have expressed the interest in uh, in having a new Rebbe. You know, because I think a, some of the younger people realize that their children need spiritual leadership. And not all the um, sociological manifestations that are going on in Lubavitch today are... Uh, do does everyone feel are are correct for the future of Lubavitch? So, uh, but you know, people are people cannot speak up because, um, like in Israel, they call in Israel the Hasidus is called Kupat um, Cholim. It's called uh, the National Insurance. Why is Hasidus called the National Insurance in Israel? Because Hasidus takes care of you from birth to death. I mean, you have a school system, you have summer camps, you have girls' schools, uh, you have jobs, and Lubavitch more so than any other organization because Lubavitch um, has shluchim. And there are, you know, I don't know how many shluchim there are today, but these people are all basically working for company town. It's like living in the company town, like Hershey, Pennsylvania, or uh, there are towns in Indiana like that where owned by a large corporation, Everyone worked in the factory, everyone went to the schools, everyone, uh, the women uh, did this and did that. The homes were owned by companies. This is the same thing as true in Lubavitch today, a, a bit of a lesser extent. So no one's going to speak up because their financial security, their ability to do a shidduch with their children will be affected. And you, you're saying it in reference to what? I'm saying it in reference to choosing a new Rebbe. Um, in reference to choosing a new Rebbe, that um, there doesn't, I mean, it seems that Lubavitch today is able and interested in doing almost anything. Um, let's say Lubavitch activities in the former Soviet Union, they're very active. 
uh, Lubavitch activities in Israel for supporting political candidates, although they claim they're not political. Lubavitch activities in the United States uh, uh, in terms of the Internet, to going against the grain of every Orthodox organization in America, except for modern Orthodoxy, who are vehemently opposed to the Internet and to smartphones. Lubavitch is the only one that's not. So Lubavitch is able to do a lot of things. They're able, but, you know, one thing they're unable to do is to get, and I'm going to use the word you don't like, is to start a narrative, or better yet, a conversation about choosing a new spiritual leader. Yeah, There's more than a leader. That they're not even interested in talking about. You know, the minute anyone raises that issue, and it has been raised, there was Rabbi Hasofer. I don't know if he's still alive. He was the chaplain at Ben-Gurion University. He raised it in writing, and uh, he was blasted. And uh, other people have raised it too, not many, but others have. And um, same thing happened. Uh, why? You know, I have reasons why, and I'm not going to discuss yeah, it but, today. But what? But why bid around the bush, so to speak? It it was so by design because if if Rebbe had any kind of desire for uh, a succession, he would have made sure it happened. I mean, what you're saying is probably true, but not. I can't say it's 100 percent true because uh, uh, let me. It, if we have time, I want to I want to do a little bit of a of a narrative. I can use that word again. Um, when the Rebbe died, um, for those of us who believe he died, and there are obviously a lot of people out there who don't believe he's dead, and that's mm -hmm. fine with me, because I I personally, and I'm going to be attacked for saying this, I personally hold more and more supportive of those Lubavitchers who believe the Rebbe is alive. Oh. Uh, than I do of the Lubavitchers who believe the Rebbe is dead, because the Lubavitchers who believe the Rebbe is dead are under obligation to choose a new spiritual leader, while the Lubavitchers who believe the Rebbe is alive are not under that obligation. So that's fine, you know, if they if they can convince me that he's alive, that's that's fine. But when the Rebbe died, um, the original um, notices in the Daily News and New York Times in, in the Algemeiner Journal, which is basically a Lubavitcher publication, was that the Rebbe died, period. Um, you know, it's a lot of press coverage. I um, talked to a, um, news, a newsman who is now a very important uh, uh, um, editor in the secular world. I mean, he's Jewish, but he's He's pretty well known in the secular world. I'm not going to mention his name. Um, and I talked to him and I showed him wills from the Rebbe. I showed him wills, which once again are, are, not, are not signed. They're not legal. And, uh, but they were wills of the Rebbe, not naming a successor, but sort of naming of, of, of suggesting an organizational framework for the continuity of the movement. When you say wills, uh, the, they're more than one. They're, they're wills, and they they sort of suggest how the movement should be run after he's gone. And they, they are called wills. They are called wills. They're labeled tzavah, and they're in, in Hebrew. And in those wills, he suggests how the movement should be uh, continuous, and he suggests 
for example, the Agudas Hasidic Chabad. And, and uh, I'm not going to mention names he suggests there because the Hebrew he uses is very, very, uh, uh, it's easy to translate, but it has double meaning. So I, I'm not going to do that. And he suggests Agudas Hasidic Chabad. He suggests um, something called Lishchas, what's it called? Lishchas, uh, the secret, uh, I forgot what he calls it. The secret office and the three arms of Lubavitch, he suggests. And um, so he suggests various names of people to, and that's one way why Krinsky is, in fact, uh, the leader of Lubavitch. I mean, uh, the, the secular leader, let's say, Lubavitch. Uh, now, uh, I showed right, that. Because he mentioned that? He's mentioned that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Rabbi Yuda Krinsky is mentioned. Okay. Um, and so Ravi Krinsky is, uh, you know, he, he's within his, uh, I mean, he doesn't need me to say this, but I, I am going to say it. He's certainly within his um, legal uh, rights to do what he's doing. Um, and that, that has nothing to do with uh, Shalom Aleichem. You know, that's, um, but that, 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 those wills were never publicized until I gave them to that journalist who was a secular Jew, who publicized them in a secular Jewish weekly. Then, once those wills were publicized, that will was publicized, then uh, the Lubavitch bureaucracy uh, admitted in, in the Algemeine Journal that there were, there were, there were these, uh, what's called in Hebrew, atiutas, which are sample, uh, sample wills from the Rebbe. So um, now, if there, so we do have, Tiutas, we do have sample wills from the Rebbe, uh, naming um, various people and an organizational framework for the continuity of the movement. And we do have a signed, sealed, and delivered, witnessed legal will by the Rebbe leaving his money, which is not a lot. He was one, the, in that sense, the Lubavitcher Rebbe is one of the uh, more honest and most honest uh, of, you know, spiritual leaders in the world. Uh, he left very little money. And, uh, and in that will, he, uh, he assigned his, um, like his will to his, uh, you know, he named as, the, what is it, the trustee, I forgot the executor, uh, Rabbi Krinsky. And I believe he left um, some of his material possessions to his niece, um, Dahlia Rothman in Israel. So what all I'm driving at is that the Rebbe did leave a will about his secular possessions. He did leave some sort of sample wills about the uh, future management. management of Chabad. So, you know, it may go against everything I've been saying now, but, you know, nothing, I'm not saying that anything I'm saying is, uh, as you, to use that word again, is the gospel truth. Uh, a lot of what I'm saying here is uh, speculation, as I'm throwing out things, maybe people know more about it, maybe pe some people uh, who know more can be convinced to talk. Um, but, you know, if he left wills, some of these other wills, could it be that he left a will um, naming a successor? And could it be that just as the will of Rabbi Joseph Eichnerson was disappeared, could it be the will of Rabbi Menachem Schneerson disappeared? Could it just be? Question mark? I don't know. 
Um, certainly, there are many in the Lubavitch movement today who stand to benefit both materially and spiritually by not having a central leadership. That that's that's not debatable. That there are a lot of people out there who, uh, because every change of leadership results in people losing jobs. I mean, this thing happened in Satmar in 1979, where Joel Teitelbaum died, again, childless, although he did have three daughters who died in his lifetime, but he had no grandchildren. Um, and where Joel Teitelbaum died, many of the Satmar bureaucracy did not want a new Rebbe, including his uh, widow, uh, Rebbe Zinfega Teitelbaum. They did not want a new Rebbe. And because uh, they had their own, as they say in uh, Yiddish, cheshbenis, or in Hebrew, cheshbonot. Um, but the, the, I think the, the rank and file in Satmar overcame that, and they appointed a new Rebbe, who was the nephew of the Satmar Rebbe, Moshe Teilbaum, Rabbi Moshe Teilbaum. Uh, and people lost jobs. The head of Satmar in London, for example, uh, the head of Satmar Yeshiva in uh, New York, Rabbi Meislish, Oliver Shalom, lost his job and was sent off in exile to London to run the Yeshiva in London, uh, to run the Satmar community in London. Rabbi uh, Ashkenazi, the Satmar Rebbe's Gabbai, and uh, he was even the Mechutin of Rabbi Moshe Teilbaum, again, was no longer the chief executive, the uh, CEO. The aide de camp, that's the best word, the gabai. Um, and there were other people who lost their jobs because when administrations change, we know that Lahabdil in, uh, you know, in governments, even if the same party retains uh, control, people, you know, uh, people lose their jobs and are replaced. So, um, it but again, was, again if, if all those uh, actors, so to speak, would have made a point to be less obscure and more clear about it, they certainly had a chance, but they seem to be, at every transition, there is this um, ambiguity, and I don't know if it's intentional or well, not, but that's a fact. Well I, well, I don't know, but you know, you also have to, the Rebbe had a uh, stroke in 1992, is that correct? Correct. Well, I don't okay. know about the date, but it's true. Right. He, in the last years, he wasn't himself, yes. Right. So there are two years that he was basically, um, you know, I don't I don't want to say anything disrespectful, but he was basically out of it. You know, although some Hasidim claimed that he was more into it than ever. But, you know, outwardly, you know, the general public got the feeling that he was out of it and uh, certainly didn't perform the role of a Rebbe anymore. Um, so there are two years for people to um, rifle through all his possessions and his desk and anything that he had. That, that there's no question about. There were two years that people had the opportunity to destroy things they didn't want to come to light. You know, so uh, I don't know. I'm not accusing anyone no, but of like anything. It's, it's not just him. You, you go at time of uh, Alter Rebbe. Tzemach Tzedek certainly, no any clear direction what should be done in the future. It's almost like a tradition by this point. Well, you know, if you take a look in the, the book by Rabbi Rifkin about the Rashab, the uh, death of the Rashab, Ishkafta the Rebbe, um, the Rashab seemed to leave a will. I mean, uh, the Rashab seemed to leave a will, leaving the uh, leadership to his only son. Uh, which begs the question, now, if he only had one son, why did he even bother leaving the world? But, Correct. But he did. Um, 
And in the case of Rabbi Nachum Schneerson, which is much more extreme than the case of Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum didn't leave a will. But during his lifetime, he certainly exhibited some sort of a closeness to Rabbi Moshe Teitelbaum. Uh-huh. And he exhibited some sort of closeness to another nephew, Rabbi Rubin. And he exhibited some sort of closeness to some other people in the uh, Satmar movement, maybe even Rabbi Meisner. <laughs> I'm no expert about Satmar. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and Rabbi Moshe Teilbaum had children, uh, many, had four or five sons. So, um, but in Lubavitcher Rebbe's case, the Rebbe must have known that he had no um, obvious successor. And so one wonders why why would a father leave his children uh, or leave the, the passengers on a ship without a captain? I mean, why would anyone leave the ship without a captain? Pardon? Oh, well, you know, now you're leading to something else, uh, which I'm not going to discuss today. But I... I, I I'm, I'm going to argue the other point right now. I'm going to argue the other side. The other side's argument, my other side's argument is that the ship needs a captain. Uh, and the Gemara even says, woe to the ship that has lost its captain. I mean, uh, and, uh, you know, this is a common phrase used by Hespadim when, when important rabbis die. And so, it's hard for me to believe, you know, when I put on my Lubavitcher hat, it's hard for me to believe that the Rebbe left the Hasidim leaderless. And that, um, so then I start believing that perhaps he did leave a will, just like he left a secular will that's undisputable. And he left these um, tiutas, these proposed wills that, uh, you know, don't have a legal status. So maybe he left the will, and uh, you know, it was just it just disappeared. It, it's possible. Yeah, you know, the Chabad they want both both ways, so to speak. And one on one hand, they want to portray themselves as a sort of spitz capitalists, meaning all the shluchim go out and they build their own businesses. On the other hand, as was the case with uh, Barry Gurari where Rebbe sort of declined any material ownership of those possessions and instead them gave them to Agudas Hasidei Chabad as sort of uh, somebody who holds something that belongs to Hasidim, not to an individual person. And there's, there's a great contradiction here. I, you know, if somebody should yeah. go to, to a local shliach in, in Montana and say, by the way, uh, the real estate that belongs to you is not really yours. It belongs to Jewish people, and so you can go take a hike. Well, well we, we don't even need to go to Montana. Uh, let's go to 770. Um, the argument in the bookcase was that the books of Joseph Eichnerson, Rabbi Joseph Eichnerson, are the possession of the Hasidim. Um, well, you know, what does it mean to be a Chabad Chassid? But let's let's just say any person um, who claims he is a Chabad Chassid is a Chabad Chassid. And let's just say that same person goes into the library and asks to see not a rare book, but just a book from 1870s. 
uh, will he be serviced? And the answer is no. The answer is most probably no. He will not be serviced. Yeah, because it was a phony argument from the beginning. Well, I'll let you say that. Um, you know, it, 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 the argument that the books belong to the Hasidim uh, was an argument that was a Hiddish. It was a novel argument to 99.9% of all Lubavitcher Hasidim. Once again, I'll have to say this, that I was always interested in books. And I also hung around Chabad Hasidim. And uh, I won't say any more because I don't need to give away uh, anything else. Um, and I did ask people many times because I would read that Rabbi Joseph Eichnerson had a big library. So I would ask what happened to the library. And the answer always was from Hasidim, not from, uh, not from Louis Jacobs and not from Art Green and not from... Judge Sifton, the son-in-law of, of uh, what's his name, Reinhard Nybor, but from Hasidei Lubavitch, Hasidei Chabad, Geja, the people answered me that the two sisters have not divided the library. That was the answer. No one ever gave me an answer that it belonged to Agudas Hasidei Chabad. That's an answer for Reinhard Nybor's, the famous Galach's son-in-law. That's an answer for Louis Jacobs, who, who wrote a book denying Torah min Shamayim. That's the answer for similar people, but that wasn't the answer that I got from Lubavitcher Hasidim. And I'm sorry for being so emphatic. Well, it wouldn't be first in consistency. Pardon? It wouldn't be first in consistency. Yeah, right, but we're talking about the book, so, uh, you know, it wouldn't be. No, absolutely not. But, there, but you know, uh, I will be like Lubavitch. We, we need to, um, we, as Lubavitch is interested in spreading its wings, we too need to spread our wings, so I will save some material for another occasion. <laughs> All right. Uh, on that note, let's, uh, let's save something for dessert. Okay, uh, let's finish on a positive note. If you're, yes. uh, you have any other questions that we can? Uh... Well, I have a lot of questions, but I don't know how much well, time you've got. Let's do one more. Let's do one more question, and then we can uh, say good Shabbos to everyone. <laughs> I know every what? every sub every subject is too big for a little. Well, well, let me, advice, then I would, then I would I just want to add something. Go ahead. Uh, there's a gentleman who lives in in a neighborhood of Brooklyn that's not Crown Heights, okay. and that gent that gentleman seems to have a uh, uncanny ability to churn out books. He's a Lubavitcher. He churns out books at the rate of almost one or two a month, mm -hmm. and many of them are interesting because they're chock full of raw facts with very little analysis. But the raw facts themselves are very interesting. There's no analysis, but there are a lot of raw facts that otherwise would not come to light, at least not come to light to uh, people like myself. Uh -huh. uh, and I suspect to most Lubavitchers. This gentleman recently wrote a book about a uh, Lubavitcher Chassid who died in the last few years, who was the uh, 
Chozer of Lubavitch. Uh-huh. And in his, this book, this gentleman, this author, tries to portray the Chozer when he came to the United States in 1951, who was all of 20 years old, mm-hmm. and, uh, or 21 years old, uh, or maybe younger, uh, who did not know English, uh, had no relatives in the United States, was not married. He is, he is portrayed in this book as the kingmaker, the kingmaker in making Rabbi Menachem Schneerson Rebbe. Wasn't, wasn't it was Rashag who imported him to begin with? I don't know who imported this gentleman, but it it it, it is unbelievable to to read such things that to to portray a twenty year old person um, as the kingmaker. This is at a time when people like Rabbi Kazanowski, Rabbi Simpson, Rabbi Levitin, Rabbi Jacobson. Rabbi, uh, we can call some others who, and they'll excuse me if I forgot some, some of the, uh, the names, the Kramer family, um, um, uh, others, including Rosalman Schneerson, were alive and well and functioning. So at this, while all these people were alive, and, and including Zalman Garari for that matter, um, while these people were alive, this, this author is trying to convince us with a full-scale book, and the book is supposedly about this gentleman's uh, um, ability as a choser, which I don't doubt, but most of the book is spent convincing us that it was this gentleman who made the Lubavitcher Rebbe Rebbe. So this is the sort of, what I, I don't have another word for it, the sort of fiction that's coming out of Lubavitch today. But isn't how religions operate, they need mythology? And at some well, point, mythology takes over from reality. Well, you're more of an expert in this, Tzemach, uh, than I am. Uh, uh, Shalom Aleichem is a, uh, a lot of what Shalom Aleichem writes is a, is a based on, on true things rather than mythology. So, uh, Well, the, Shema, sp- speaking of Shalom Aleichem, you know, they, uh, they, they, there's no contemporary literature that actually uh, pays any respect to this movement, not like Chaim Grade, who just described Litvaks at the time, or Dernister, who wrote about what was it like in Ukraine. There's, there's, and, nothing, and of, there's nothing of that statue today that right. describes this movement, you know? Well, because, you know, first of all, I can't think of one author of fiction in the United States or in Israel. In Israel, there's one rabbi, Rabbi Chaim Sabato, who writes nice fiction. I like Rabbi Chaim Sabato a lot. And, uh, but Rabbi Chaim Sabato is a man who served in the Israeli army and is a religious Zionist. He, he, uh, you know, he is not a Haredi. He's a fine human being, I can see from his writings. Uh, but there are no Orthodox writers and those Orthodox writers who do exist, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm contradicting myself. There are a few, but they're all women. They're all women. Uh, I can't think of a male Orthodox writer. Herman Woke was closest to it. And uh, well, Herman Woke did not 
basically, he wrote Marjorie Morningstar, The Winds of War, but he didn't write about uh, religious, Orthodox Jewish religious uh, themes. That was not his uh, subject matter. So uh, people write, I mean, Chaim Potak wrote about Lubavitch, but Chaim Potak, um, he wrote about Lubavitch, uh, not not in his first book, The Chosen wasn't about Lubavitch. I but should I believe live, it's right? But his portrayal of Lubavitch, and you know, when I read it, and I read it twice, I thought he was crazy. His portrayal of Lubavitch was a Lubavitch where the New York Times was the main text, and the main text was um, was secular, the secular world. That was the main context of Lubavitch. And I thought, this guy's crazy. I mean, the Lubavitch Rebbe says my more, and the Lubavitch Rebbe studies Torah, the Lubavitch Rebbe doesn't read the New York Times, the Lubavitch Rebbe, and you know, I don't know. Maybe Chaim Potak captured it better than I did, than I do. I don't know. You know, but uh, I can only think of my name as Usher Leif. And um, Sema, I don't know if you read a, 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 a novel, if I can call it that, The Hour of the Clown. No. Okay. The Hour of the Clown was recommended to me around 30, you know, 30 or 40 years ago uh, by a modern Orthodox Jew who looked at me and said, uh, you must be a Lubavitcher. And I said, well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know what I am. You know, I still don't know what I am. But, um, and he said, you need to read The Hour of the Clown. So in those days, Midtown Manhattan had a lot of beautiful, if I can use that word from Donald Trump, um, beautiful bookstores. So I went in and I bought The Hour of the Clown. It's written by an Israeli author. It's a fiction book. It's a um, suspense novel. But you know what? It's the best book about Lubavitch ever written. It's about the Lubavitch underground in the Soviet Union of the 1960s and 70s. And the head of the Lubavitch underground and all the Lubavitch Hasidim in Russia are no longer religious. They just know they're Lubavitchers, but they're not religious anymore. They're not observant. And the head is a clown. The head of Lubavitch in in Soviet Union is a clown. And um, and the hour of the clown is a, is a, a excellent book where the uh, Shin Bez and the KGB and the CIA all uh, interface and <laughs> in trying to prevent or execute assassination of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Crown Heights. And um, and this guy who wrote it, the Israeli who wrote it, he's he's got the, he's got Crown Heights down better than than uh, Chaim Potek, Oliver Shalom ever did. He's got, this guy, Israeli must have spent time in Crown Heights. He's got it down right. And he's got down the Russian Hasidim. I don't mean the Russian Hasidim not being religious, but their uh, their personality, the persona of the Russian Hasidim. He's got it down perfectly. And he's got down the personality of the American Hasidim, uh, of the bureaucrats here. Very good. So although the book doesn't capture what you said, it doesn't capture what like Chaim Grata captures, the inner life of the Litvische Terevelt, Mm-hmm. in into Europe. But, you know, maybe, you know, I don't know if you've ever read, um, you know, Fischl Schneerson. I have, I have a book in my possession, but about psychology. What, what's about psychology? Yeah, yes. I do too. 
Yeah. I have several books by Fischl, but Fischl, Schneerson, do I have two minutes to talk about him or am I uh, Go destroying ahead. everything? Sure, no, no. I don't, I don't want to destroy the world. No, no, there's no, there's no destruction. This is, this is a free I, I'm flow. still waiting for I'm still waiting for Mashiach, you know. All right. Uh, uh, you know, um, anyway, Fischl Schneerson was a Kopister Einikel, uh-huh. and um, he was a either an MD or a PhD. And uh, I believe he was a brother of Isaac Schneerson, who was a, a Jewish activist and a, if I can use the word, because Yonah Rabiner, am I pronouncing it correctly? Yes. Okay, he was a Kozyana Rabina in Chernigov before the um, uh, revolution. And uh, so official... Kozyana Ravin, Kozyana Ravin. Rabin, right. Or as we know it in uh, the modern world, Rav Mitam, or as the yeah. Frumayidin would say, a Rav Ontam. Uh, but whatever, but but the Isaac Schneerson was a Rav Mitam. He had a lot of Tom. He, he, his Zichreinus, by the way, if anyone wants, if anyone can read Yiddish, his Zichreinus are one of the most fascinating books about the uh, the history of Jews in Soviet Union in uh, Russia between 1880 and 1920. Uh, you know, fascinating. Uh, you know, because he writes, you know, both as a Schneerson and as a modern person, which is unusual. Uh, maybe not so unusual, but uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I changed my mind very fast when I. Yes, right. Uh, but Fischl, Barry, Barry Gerari told me when I asked him about Fischl Schneerson, since Fischl lived in Warsaw, uh, Dr. Fischl Schneerson, he said, was a religious man. But beyond being a religious person, he was a spiritual person. He said, uh, Dr. Fischl Schneerson would not like to dive mincha in a shul. He'd like to go into the uh, Otvatsk forests, mm-hmm. in the forest woods around Otvatsk, and daven in the woods. That He was a spiritual person. He was a highly spiritual, sensitive person. Uh, <laughs> why, why he was Wouldn't in Otvatsk to begin with? Uh, Fischl? Yeah. Um, he's, he's a homeler. He's from Homel, right? He's from, I don't, I mean, could be. I think that you're right. I think his father was a Rav of Homel, uh, yeah. Schneer's Alm Schneerson, you know, who, by the way, thought of himself as a candidate, Schneer's Alm Schneerson, to become the Rebbe in 1920, because he said he had a special bracha from the Tzemach Tzedek, uh to be Makar of young people to Chabad Chassidus. But, but, that, you know, that's a different story. Yeah. Um, but but Barry told me that Fischl was a religious man. Now, Fischl uh, did write, uh, I have a number of his uh, pamphlets, or maybe you want to call them a book, I don't know. Um, but Fischl also wrote a novel, a novella about Chabad. It's called Chaim Gravitzer. Sure, sure. In, and uh, I don't know if it's available in English, Um certainly available in Hebrew now. It was orig- I think it was written in Yiddish originally. I believe so. I mean, uh, and it's an, it, it does capture the essence, the inner life of the Chabad Chassid, um, uh, whose name in the book is Chaim Gravitzer, his inner spiritual struggles. Uh, Chaim Gravitzer has, and to use the language of Chabad and the Fila, which is, uh, you know, he, he loses his spiritual energy. And um, he then embarks in part two of the book, I believe he embarks on a trip 
in Russia, a spiritual journey, both physical, but it's really for spiritual reasons. He goes to Chernobyl, to the Tursky land, the land of the Tursky's. Uh, what the Lubavitcher Hasidim call, I don't know why, Polish Hasidim, Palisha, although the, it's really Ukrainish and uh, Russian. But they call him, Chabad Hasidim call anyone who's not a Lubavitcher Hasid, a Palisha Hasid, which is fine. Uh, you know. Um, so he goes to the Tversky's, and then part three, I believe, which is really part of part, part, part two, which is really, um, he goes to the Litvische Welt. I believe he goes to Brisk. And and, to, and I don't remember. Now, the book really is not a novel in the sense that it has a beginning and an end. It's more of a, a spiritual diary, a fictional spiritual diary. So I think Fischl Schneerson did capture the inner life of Chabad. But uh, you know what? I posit, if I can use that fancy modern Orthodox language, uh, I posit that most Lubavitcher Chassidim today would not understand the inner spiritual struggles of Chaim Gravitzer. Because Lubavitch is no longer a spiritual movement. That's a different subject right here. It is, but I have to add this, that Lubavitch is not a spiritual movement. Lubavitch, from the time of the Alta Rebbe until the time of the Rayats, was an introspective movement based on prayer, study, believe it or not, study, prayer, and a lot of introspection on one's own being and on one's own spiritual being. Now, if we take those three things I'm positing, study is out the window in today's Lubavitch. Um, you know, it's just out the window. I mean, um, the other Hasidic groups that in Europe were not necessarily well known for their learning, groups like Bobov and others have produced, you know, Dayonim and Russia Yeshivas by the dozens. Bobov, Bell, Satmar. Satmar is really a Hasidist of Balabatim, of lay people. Satmar has produced in the last 20 years um, Vishnitz, I mean, they've all produced Talmide Chachamim, Lubavitch, a few. And it's no coincidence that some of the few that Lubavitch has produced are not products of the Lubavitch or Yeshiva. They are converts, so to speak, like Rabbi Oberlander in Budapest, um, Rabbi Mendel Wechter, who unfortunately you know, was attacked uh, many years ago. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, There's Rabbi Heller in Crown Heights. Rabbi Heller, who's a tremendous Lamdan, um, you know, never went to Lubavitcher Shiva. It's a product of risk. Uh, There are, of course, exceptions. I mean, Rabbi Kalmanson, Rabbi Shapiro, Lubavitch is not devoid of learning, but it hasn't produced. So learning, that's something that's in the history books. Introspection. What? Where? Where does one meet the Lubavitcher who has any introspection? I've I've yet to meet almost any Lubavitcher who has introspection. The, the average Lubavitcher is just so busy driving his car and running from from running after women to 
to light candles and running after men to put on film. He has no time to think about where he stands spiritually. Absolutely. No time. Where, where does one have time? I forgot the main thing is fundraising. I mean, uh, where does one have time to think about um, one's own standing in the world of spirituality? And the third thing, prayer. In the old days of Lubavitch, prayer occupied was a major pillar of the movement. I mean, long, lengthy prayer, meditative prayer, where one studied a mimer, Hasidus, and then one, and I don't claim I know how to do it, but then again, I don't claim I'm a Lubavitch or Hasid. I, I, I don't claim that. Um, but you study a mimer Hasidus, and then you, you pray, you daven with that mimer Hasidus, who, who, who? Maybe there are few people in Crown Heights who are, who are adepts, spiritual adepts. But the average Lubavitcher is concerned about uh, either fundraising, getting his picture in the local newspaper, or buying real estate. Uh, none of which are terrible in themselves. But this was not what Lubavitch was all about. In, in the Soviet Union, and this was not what Lubavitch was all about in Russia, at least not according to their own publications. <laughs> Maybe I'm just been brainwashed about what Lubavitch was before 1950. It could be. Maybe everything they wrote about what Lubavitch was before 1950 was also just an exaggeration. Maybe Lubavitch never was a, a meditative movement. Maybe it was never an introspective movement. Maybe it was never a movement that talked about davening. Uh, who knows? I don't know. I don't want to throw any stones here. Go ahead, throw it. I'm, I'm immune. No. I'm, I've been immunized by Lubavitch. They've given me immunization. It's a different. I've subject. got a vaccination. I've got a certificate of vaccination. Good, Wait good. a second. Yeah, right. I've got. I've got a booster. I've got a booster from my local shliach. Give it. Give it to me. No, nah, nah, not right now. Wait a second. But I've got a double booster from my local shliach. We'll talk about shlichas next time. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Okay, listen, um, Rav Sholem Aleichem, I want to wish you a good Shabbos. You too, a good Shabbos. It's nice talking to you, Zaygezund. Likewise, a good Shabbos, Zaygezund, and Stark, and Emir uh, uh, let's continue the dialogue. Absolutely. Zaygezund. Bye-bye.